All right, so the book of Proverbs, remember we've looked at the outline before, and let me remind you again where we are. The introduction of the first nine chapters focuses on youth, the child and the youth, and it provides for us the purpose statement of the book is to hear wisdom and instruction, to see the words of understanding, to grab the instruction of success, justice, judgment, and equity. And there's a thesis for the book, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So there's that chiasm that's the structure for the remainder of the introduction that's there in the main outline. And then collection two, which we're in the middle of right now, are the 375 Proverbs of Solomon, and they are focused on the young man or the adult. And so there's very little about leadership, and we interestingly have one of the verses with the reference to a king in this section and in the part we'll be talking about. So, as we carry on, uh, look at the beginning in page 2. We looked at the, that first chiasm, verses 1 through 7. So that was sort of a walking by faith, and we studied that chiasm, and then we looked at the next section on page 3. There was that not walking by sight, and so a laying out of a, of a chiasm with the center pieces there. And we're continuing now through the verses 15 through 18, uh, sort of the next section. So remember the other structures, those, those other two sections, the, the thesis of those chiasms was in the middle verses. And so much as that occurs frequently in Psalms. And so now we move into verses 15 to 18 as the next collection. And we spent time on this a little bit last time, so I'll be moving through it quickly. But verse 15, remember, was a bridge. It's kind of into into both collections. And so verse 15 said, The simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. And this next section ends at verse 18, which is the simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. So the simple is the bookend on both sections. And so this idea of the simple inheriting folly and the idea of the simple believing every word are related because it has to do with instability. So the prudent carefully considers his steps, and as a result, he's considering carefully the doctrinal basis upon which to act. Because right? when you're considering your steps, you wonder, what should I do? Why is it that I should do this? Why is this better than something else? Now, the simple, in believing every word, is tossed about by every wind of doctrine. And so if you find yourself tossed about, what you need to do is you need to stop and say, what are the most foundational things here that I need to address? need to consider how do you know truth the word of god okay what does the word of god say about reality all right so what's real god and his decrees all right so i need to stop and consider the reality that god governs everything that i am a creature and he is the creator and what does he say is good and so his law instructs us in the way of wisdom and so that should give us a stability and we should know the goal which is his glory so we focus on his glory in our lives and we say our goal is to pursue his glory to increase my own good by the possession of the knowledge of him. I glorify him by helping to spread the knowledge of him to others. And I act in a manner that supports that testimony and supports my own learning in a continued way. And the law lays that out. And so when we have the goal in mind and we have the law to instruct us in our steps, we can avoid the danger of the Pharisees, right, of taking things like the Sabbath and making man for the Sabbath as opposed to the Sabbath for man. So we have the goal in mind 
We understand that the law instructs us how to pursue our good, and we avoid misinterpretations by keeping the goal of the glory of God in mind. And so that allows us to have stability in our thoughts rather than believing every word. It allows us to consider carefully our ways. And so actions depend upon presuppositions. They depend upon what it is that you think is true. Now, verse 16, the wise man fears and departs from evil. We discussed this a little bit last time. The fear of evil is the fear of committing evil and being influenced by evil. And so, he who commits evil suffers worse harm than the one he acts against. Evil brings an everlasting curse apart from Christ. Evil brings an infinite debt that is only able to be repaid by the God-man. And so, we must consider, it sounds trite to say that you who commit evil are, are harmed more by the act than the one you do it against. But when we think it's trite, it's because we are not considering the depth of the reality of the harm to ourselves of sin, where we have replaced God with something else that we are valuing more highly than God and pursued that false God. We have destroyed inwardly the nature of ourselves when we pursue sin. We have replaced what ought to be viewed as the good with something lesser. So the, the fool, rather than fearing evil and departing from it, the fool rages and is self-confident. And so this idea of being self-confident and trusting in your own understanding as opposed to leaning upon the Lord and looking to His revelation is the thing to be warned against. And this raging is a sort of, a sort of tossing about of activities. The tumult of the exterior points to a tumult of the interior. Stability and patience are things that come from a stability of mind. And the Word of God is a firm foundation for stability of mind. Verse 17, A quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of wicked intentions is hated. So, the the quick temper and the rage and self-confidence, these things fit together. And so, Wicked intentions leads to hatred from God. God hates the wicked. Psalm 5 5. And he would hate us apart from Christ. But in Christ, he loves us and he looks upon Christ's sacrifice as sufficient to remove all cause of hatred. And so, also, wicked men, wicked intentions bring hatred from other men. It is the case that evil intentions cause suspicion, evil intentions cause fracturing, evil intentions bring about a self-destructiveness. And so there's an instability in relationships between people that comes from wicked intentions. And this all ends out with the simple inherit folly because the simple don't have a basis to be stable, don't have a basis for good intentions, don't have a basis for stable relationships, don't have a basis for stable action. And so, without stable thoughts, words, actions, and relationships, what you build is a sandcastle being torn down day by day. Being built and torn down. And so, the changing of direction, the changing of the goal, the inability to know what is right and what is wrong, a sort of pragmatic action of life leads to a result of useless action. So, Ecclesiastes lays out for us as sort of you know, the uselessness when you don't have the definition of God as the highest good, all of your actions become vain. 
And so Ecclesiastes has the two great contrasts, under the sun and under heaven. And under the sun is looking at the world in terms of not understanding that it all goes to the glory of God. You can even believe in God and not understand the goal of glorifying God and worthlessly pursue goals in a way that is not stable. And so under heaven, you understand the goal of the advance of the kingdom of heaven and you can seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and see how that will result in great blessing and fruitfulness and the stable advance of things and makes it so that our losses, our setbacks, and in death even, there is refuge. So, moving to the next section, and we'll be slowing down here, verses 18 to 24. The last part contrasted wisdom with actions, and now we're going to be looking at a set of verses that contrast consequences with actions. So, what are the consequences that come from the kinds of actions? So, verse 19, the evil will bow before the good, and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. So what's the consequence there? The consequence is dominion. Acting righteously results in dominion. The law of God is an instruction manual for world conquest. The gospel advances. It will go forth. The word of God will be written on doorposts. The word of God will be written on gates. Verse 20, The poor man is hated even by his own neighbor, but the rich has many friends, or literally many lovers. There are many lovers of the rich. He who despises his neighbor sins, but he who has mercy on the poor, happy is he. There's a dual set there, right? Obviously, verse 21 is teaching us, hey, we should have mercy on the poor and not despise them. We can despise the poor. Why is that? There's a temptation to despise the poor because visibly, if we live by sight, the poor do not seem to have as much to offer us as the wealthy. And so, on the other side of that, when we consider the idea of the poor man being hated by his own neighbor, but the rich has many friends, or there are many lovers of the rich, what is that teaching us? It's teaching us that diligence, which leads to tends to lead to, to wealth, also tends to lead to influence. And so it has been the way of life of Calvinists in every nation that that glorious true theology enters that they are known for industry and productivity. And that productivity and industry and trade and skilled work results in wealth. Calvinists are known for banking and trading and making highly skilled objects like watches. Right? These are the things that are developed. Shipping is a marker of Calvinist nations that live by water. When they don't have the blessing of water where they can have ships... They tend to have manufacturing and banking. Money is easier to move without ships than other things. And so it works out well. And at the same time, the skilled manufacturer thinks, why do the Swiss make clocks? Because they're easy to move and gain high value from compared to other things that are heavier, that are high value objects. So the intelligent choice of seeking to make things that are Fitting to industry in the location where you reside. That is the effect of the Calvinist work ethic, the Puritan work ethic, the Protestant work ethic. So, this results in influence. Why did the British and the Dutch and the Swiss and the Northern Germans, why? Why did they have such an outsized cultural influence? Because of the industry of Calvinism. 
and the result in the formation of wealth that comes from that. And so there is this same effect in the United States. And now with the decline of Calvinism in all of those nations, there is a decline in influence and an increase in debt and consumption and the destruction of the heritage that has been, uh, that has been passed on. But so that sort of influence is generated by wisdom and the way in which the wealth that wisdom generates is able to be used for dominion. So industry is beneficial for your own soul, it's a blessing for the people around you, and it increases your own ability to influence things. Verse 22, that's the consequence. Verse 22, and, and then also you have things you can use to be merciful to the poor. You have something to share. And that results in happiness. So there's the closest thing I can find in the Bible to money buying happiness. It would be taking the money that you have and using it to bless your brother. And the result is that you can expect happiness in doing good works, in blessing your brother and bringing honor to God. So we'll talk more about that in a bit. Verse 22, Do they not go astray who devise evil, but mercy and truth belong to those who devise good? In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. The crown of the wise is their riches, but the foolishness of fools is folly. So 22, devising evil results in going astray. Um, devising good is a result of and is encouraged by having truth and mercy. The idea of labor resulting in profit, there's the consequence, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. And we've seen, there's all this stuff earlier on about talking, especially, remember chapter 13, had a lot about how if you talk in a way that's useful, it results in lots of profit. And we talked about how management is often talking, how teaching is often talking, how you know, giving good counsel is talking, right? So there's many ways where you can talk and profitably bring good, but if you just talk, and it's not giving wisdom, not giving instruction, not planning discussion. That sort of talking leads to poverty if you're preventing profitable things from being sorted out. So idle chatter, the talk of the lips without wisdom, leads to poverty. And there are many ways that, that fits together. And then 24, the crown of the wise is their riches, but the foolishness of folly is... Sorry, the foolishness of fools is folly. So if you have foolishness then that's going to show folly. It's going to show worthless action that does not result in usefulness or profit. And usefulness can be blessing to other people, uh, but also if you're doing dominion work, generally speaking, if you're applying wisdom, you're going to do work and it's going to be profitable. Now, you can't guarantee a profit. We can't say, I'm going to go to such and such a place and trade and profit. We should say, rather, if the Lord wills. Right? But the general tendency of dominion work is that it yields fruitfulness. It yields profit. So that would be the general tendency. Now, the crown of the wise is their riches. In other words, wisdom tends to result in a sort of riches that is a sort of honor and it's a, a place of authority. Because when you have money, you have authority over the money. Right? You, you have title to it. You have a stewardship authority over it. And so the ability to use that money, it's a sort of crown, it's a marker of authority, it's a marker of honor, and we just saw earlier that means that you're going to have many lovers, 
and so you have influence. And if you're wise and you have influence, then that should give greater projection to your wisdom. The problem is we see many people say, when I'm famous, when I'm wealthy, when I'm effective, then I'll start to witness. The reality is you need to be effective in the low position, speaking wisdom, diligently accumulating, and using that to build more wealth and to be doing good to people along the way, tithing along the way. And as you do that, and there's blessing on it, you are habituated into the use of that power and influence as it grows to using it in a godly way. And so that is how the wise grind out evil is by the gradual rising. There is this leaven that leavens the whole lump. It's not an instantaneous thing. There's no magical turning it around. There's no, if I can just hide and then get really powerful, then I can use the power for good. It's doing good along the way, applying the word of God, putting it on your doorpost, putting it on your hand, putting it on the gates, putting it on your forehead, and teaching it to your children when they're small, when they're less useful. But when they become more useful and the word is in them, then it starts to come out their fingertips and they become an extension of the power of the house and they're able to do good to bless and to bring glory to God. So those are the consequences that we see laid out there. So let's dig in a little bit more. So 19, the evil will bow before the good and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. So the first part is individual and the second part is collective. Okay, so the first part, the evil will bow before the good. This is an individual basis. Evil will tend to be subjected to good. Good has power to overcome evil, right? We're commanded to overcome evil with good. That's what we're commanded to do. To not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. So evil will tend to be subjected to good. Good has power to overcome evil. What is good works with the structure of reality. God's design is revealed by the law. The law teaches us how things work. The book of Proverbs instructs us how things work. These are the general tendencies of how things work. And so, what is good works with the structure of reality to yield fruitfulness and bring great power for the subjection of evil and the advance of righteousness. So when you look through the book of Proverbs and you're intentionally trying to say, what does this book tell me about how things work? That lines up to powerfully lay out this strong statement of when I do what God says, there's this great fruitfulness and blessing. Now, you look at Job and Ecclesiastes, and you have the exception with Job. And with Ecclesiastes, you have all of these sort of cases being brought out to try to say, well, what about this and what about that? What about this example? And so we need to, again... Hopefully this feels like a broken record at this point. Those are the exceptions. The exceptions are not the rule. The book of Proverbs lays out the general rule. And so the exceptions, Job, what happens to Job after his testing? Greater blessing. Ecclesiastes ends with the answer. Right? So the trajectory of history is the display of the glory of God in the theater, which is the cosmos. History is the play. The evil will bow before the good and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. Now here's what we tend to want to do. We want to say this will happen when Jesus comes back. Evil will bow before the good and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. 
you know, when Jesus comes back. This is teaching us about the way things work here. Now, the wicked at the gates of the righteous, that's collective. The city of God will rule the city of man. The place of public government, the gates, will have evil rulers surrendering to righteous rulers. The kings of the earth will kiss the sun. They will be subject. He rules, and while he's ruling, his enemies are being subjected under his feet. The last enemy to be defeated is death, which means the other ones are defeated before death is ended with the general resurrection. The wicked will bow at the gates of the righteous. This has to do with this idea of essentially magistrates, armies, surrendering. There is a spiritual war. It is ongoing. And we are storming the gates of hell, the place of rule of hell. The kingdom of Satan fills the earth and it's being displaced. Christ died and bound him. The nations are being undeceived. They are being taken over. The church has outposts. There are forward operating bases. There are places of preaching. There are places of resistance. And you find scattered throughout the earth those who have not bowed the knee to Baal. One of them will chase a thousand of the Canaanites. The righteous are bold as lions. The word goes forth. The evil will bow before the good and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. This is supposed to encourage us to recognize that we ought to be bold and that we ought to fight. That we ought not to surrender. And so, we need to remember that we don't look to the way that things appear to operate, but to base things in the reality of how things operate. We must not operate by sight, we must operate by faith. We must believe the word of God. And so, we go to the poor man, the poor man's hated by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. People tend to be drawn to people they see opportunity to gain from. Rich people have more visible things to offer. But the Lord teaches us that poor people are to be sought out as friends because of the reality that they have immortal souls. And here's the great thing about poor people. They cannot repay you for your favors. Which means that God has to repay you for the favors. And God's repayment is better than man's. The Lord teaches us to invite the poor to our feasts so that we can't get returned. Paul teaches us that the poor have an abundance of one thing, and this is very important. They have an abundance of lack or need. And here's the thing about the rich. The rich have a surplus or supply. And those things are well designed to meet the lack or need. And so a positive trade can be made, beneficial to both parties. The two can make an exchange and get more of what the other has. And when you do that, Both parties obtain blessing. The poor receives material blessing from God through the rich. And the rich obtains spiritual blessing from the poor. Sorry, from God through the poor. There's a way where there's provision there. There's a blessing in both. 
And so it is important to realize that diaconal ministry and personal generosity are both ways where that is done. And, you know, generally as a church, by diaconal ministry, we can bring blessing to the church in that way. That's the ordinary means for bringing that blessing. And then if, you know, you want to keep the blessing for yourself, you can do it by being generous. And so those who desire to be generous and to help each other in their needs are able to do blessing and they will receive blessing. Now, verse 21, he who despises his neighbor sins, but he who has mercy on the poor, happy is he. So happiness comes from mercy to the poor because it's an outward expression of trusting God. Since it's living by faith and not by sight, to care for the poor and to care for the favor of the poor. You, this idea that we should encourage the worthy poor by material blessing and profitable employment in the name of Christ. It's easy to despise the poor because by sight they appear to have little effect on us except to cause trouble. Viewing people as means to power, money, or pleasure rather than as immortal souls is foolishly short-sighted. The poor are a means to our good. You can bless them cheaply to great effect. Now think about this. Do you remember, you who are doing better now than you might have been at one point in time, if you can think back on when you were not doing as well, you may remember a time where somebody blessed you with something that now you would think relatively small or cheap and how big of an effect it had on you at that time. So you think about now, if you're doing better, how you can, at relatively little cost to yourself, have large impact on your brother. You can bless them relatively cheaply to great effect and bring great reward and encouragement. You bring great reward for yourself and encouragement to yourself, and you bless them and encourage them. And you encourage them to know the truth more fully, far more easily than the rich in most cases. Blessing that is relatively cheap to encourage godliness compared to that influence on somebody who is rich. If you want to get poor, give gifts to the rich. That's what Proverbs says elsewhere, right? So, we should make the orphan rejoice, the widow sing, and the poor man exult in his riches in God. Let us make the world fret that we love each other so well. Wouldn't it be delightful for the world to fret at how obvious it is that we are more joyful than them? Right, Right now, the whole thing, here's the game, right? We have more fun. We have cookies. We have illicit pleasures. Join us. Come to the dark side, right? This is, this is the idea of the world. But if for us, if we love each other so well that it's obvious that we are joyful and that we are pleased in God, then their words about our joylessness will be hollow clangs of a dying ideology. So caring for each other well. Verse 22. Do they not go astray who devise evil, but mercy and truth belong to those who devise good? Right, devising evil, devising good. I love this. Right, you should. We, we need. We need to have like secret planning sessions to do good to each other. Right, you conspire together. You go. How can we? How can we plot for this person's good? This idea of planning for other people's good, devising good. Now that doesn't mean you can invent good works. Like, oh, let's do a pilgrimage. Right, it means 
you're applying the law of God and you are devising particular applications of the law of God to do good works. Now, if you plot evil and if you fail to understand the goal, you fail to understand the means, there's this going astray. There is this not understanding where they're going. You're going to someplace other than the celestial city. You're heading in the wrong direction. You're going to a place of, of misery. Devising good comes from having already received mercy and it makes it easy to be merciful to other people when you have received mercy. We have received mercy from Christ and we ought to be merciful to others. When you devise good, unless you're doing that good to God, to Jesus Christ, right? who are you doing it to? You're doing it towards evil people who are recipients of mercy. And so to be willing to do that requires that you be merciful. And so mercy and truth belong to you. You you already have mercy from Christ and mercy now dwells in you. And you have truth and you are now able to act mercifully and in accordance with truth. So those are the effects. Now, in all labor there's profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. Labor is so valuable for the one who labors. Looking for opportunities to work. If you, if you don't currently have work and you want more work or you want to become more skilled, working even for free is a way of developing skill and developing opportunity. Free work doesn't stay free for very long if it's good. Free work does not remain free very long if it's good. It starts to collect rewards. And a part of the rewards initially, when you're, when you're not skilled and you're working for free, what you're doing is you're developing a skill so that you can then be more marketable. In fact, people who are unskilled, oftentimes, it's almost more trouble to have them around than to just have their free help. And so you try to do everything you can. You find, how can I be useful? What can I do? What are the little jobs I can do? How can I remove problems? How can I be helpful? What are the little things to do? Right? And so then as you're doing that and you're looking for things and you're picking up ways to learn and you're, and, you're, and you're figuring out how to do more and more value, what happens is you're getting value to yourself. You're getting the profit of increased skill, Haskell. And that idea of skill being more effective at being able to get things done. And just talking about things without wisdom. Not to impart knowledge, not to give counsel, not to plan, right? not to manage, just, just talking. It just consumes time. And time cannot be repurchased. The consumption of time leads to poverty. Now, one of the kinds of talking that helps you to be effective, the type of talking that's work, if you are able to have hard conversations, if you are able to discuss awkward things that need to be addressed, oftentimes your ability to succeed depends upon how well you can push through and have the hard conversations. Whether you're managing people or whether you're dealing with a manager who's above you. The ability to have hard conversations. I can remember the first time I ever asked for a raise. It was nerve-wracking. But somehow the Lord gave me strength and I was able to push through. And the requesting of a raise helped me and it made it so that I had a better position to then also feel pressure to keep adding more value. Right? The avoidance of stagnation, the ability to ask for things, the ability to have hard conversations, those are the types of things that make it so that you can
continue on and push on. That's not idle chatter. Those are the kinds of difficult conversations that require intentionality and courage. So we contrast idleness with the labor that brings profit. And wise people look for profitable work to do. They try to redeem the time. And the crown of that wisdom, well, there's many crowns. We keep seeing crowns of wisdom. A woman of valor is a crown of her husband. We see gray hair being a crown that's a pointer to wisdom. We see riches as a crown for the wise. And so, if we connect that back to verse 23, there's a prophet in labor, and that prophet of labor points to wisdom that brings about labor. And so, on the other side, the foolishness of fools is folly. It leads to poverty. Is it an infallible marker? Is the sign infallible? No. There are wise poor, and there are rich fools. Okay. Pause there. Comments, questions, objections from voting members and those who are speaking. Okay. Father, I ask that you would help us to be concerned for dominion work. You speak about it so much in the book of Proverbs. You teach us to care about being good stewards of our time, of our money, of our gifts, of our relationships. That you teach us to seek wisdom. And you teach us that there are many blessings that come from wisdom. Father, I ask that you would help us to seek to act in trust towards you and to seek to believe the general rules. I ask that you would help us to be careful to bless each other when the general rule is not yet applying so that we can help each other in testing and lift each other's burdens. I ask that you would help us to care for each other, to cause each other to rejoice. We pray these things in Christ's name.